Last week, we were continuing on our discussions with, uh, about Abram and his call, and he's now in the land of Canaan, and the land has been given to him by God. We got onto the subject of Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Like those of you who were here last week. We talked about some very important things about Melchizedek, and one of the things was that, well, let me backtrack a little bit. So Abraham battles these kings, and after he battles these kings, he and his 318-man army wins. Then the king of Sodom comes out and says to him, if you remember, just give me the people, let me keep the people, and you take everything else. We discussed about what that really means. Sodom and the system of Babylon, these evil empires, if you will, the desire of the people. So he said, no, just I, I don't want to take anything from you but what my men have eaten, right, and, and what we have earned, basically, and, and, and we're going we're to go away with that. Saying, that's how we should live in this society. We should take what we earn, we should pay taxes, as Jesus said, but we should never become part and parcel of the Babylonian system. So that, that's one thing. But I want to really dwell on something. I want to dwell on Melchizedek today because we also touched upon the fact that after, he, after Abram won the battle with the kings, and just before the king of Sodom came out and had, was talking to Abram, an interesting fellow, an interesting king, not a fellow, a king happened to talk with, uh, presented himself and was talking to Abram, and it was this king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, we, so we said last week that the Salem means what? Peace. Peace. It was the king of peace. Isn't that interesting? When you look at kings today or in, in history, are they really all about peace? Kings are usually associated with war. Kings are usually associated with grabbing for themselves and making a kingdom for themselves and holding on to it and using people and conquering people to enlarge their domain. Well, this is the king of peace. If you also remember, two major, two very telling uh, interactions happened between Abram and Melchizedek. The first is told, we're told that Melchizedek offers Abram bread and wine. Now, did anybody take communion last week? What did the bread and wine symbolize? The body and blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't this interesting that bread and wine are offered by this king of peace way before Jesus Christ comes as Jesus Christ? Isn't that interesting? The other thing is that Abram, and it says in Genesis 14 and 20, then Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. So now we have the introduction of the concept of tithing. Everybody here has heard of the concept of tithing. And I asked last week, well, I mentioned last week that tithing is a law. And I asked last week, is it a law for us today? Some said yes, some said no, and I, probably some were unsure. The answer I said is no. And we, I was thinking about that this week, and I want to build the case because I want you to understand where we stand and what grace is all about. I want you to understand, and you have to understand now, I believe is a very good juncture to understand what the new covenant really is all about. Because some of you came out of backgrounds that, I don't want to say negated Israel, but replaced Israel with the church. Some of you came out of backgrounds that have said, and there's a hymn, all, I don't even know how it goes, but basically the words are, you know, I rest on the promises of God, which is a good thing, but all his promises are for me. That's wrong. All of God's promises are not for you and me. So these are the two major things that we have to correct before we move forward because we are getting to the point now where 
where we are going to talk about this nation of Israel, which so far ha we have, hasn't been born yet. We've talked about Abram being the father of promise or the father of a nation, and his na name is going to be changed to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. But when you hear of the God of the Old Testament or the God of the Bible or the God of creation, you may have heard of him called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's usually the defining mark or the defining uh, name of this God whom we believe in, who is the only true God. Because you've also heard of Allah, you've heard of Buddha, you've heard of Molech, you've heard of other gods, Zeus, you've heard of many, many gods. But when we define our God, we call him the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you see there's a separation here. So this king of, this, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, is sort of a precursor to the law for Israel to the bread and the wine pointing to Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk, I'm going to also show you that Scripture talks about Jesus Christ being equated with Melchizedek. I mentioned last week that some people believe that G Melchizedek himself, because he has no genealogy, we're going to talk about this, he has no genealogy, that Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate or pre-Jesus pre Christ incarnation of the word of Jesus Christ. And I don't know if that's true or not. But it doesn't really matter at this point. What matters is who Melchizedek is, what happened with him, and so forth. The whole point I want, to get, I want you to get out of this session today is the law versus grace. We need to understand that before we move forward because as we get into Leviticus and we get into you know, Exodus and Leviticus, we have to understand the difference. And I also I wanted to make sure that everybody's clear on that. So if you turn to Genesis 14, and uh, Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17, I just want to review who this Melchizedek is, and we're going to move from there. By the way, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a set of notes I generated this morning, which are not part of the main set of notes. This is a document that's going to be posted on my website. You know where you get my weekly notes for, on the overview of the Bible? This is going to be a document. The name of it is The Law of Israel versus The Law of Grace. In my notes, because I also have my notes, we're not going to probably have time, but I also want to pick up where I left off last week. So this is sort of a side trip that we need to take, but it's in a separate document. So I just want you to be aware of that. When you see in my notes refer to that document, remember that it's there for you. This is very important, I believe. We're going to talk about Genesis 14, verses uh, 17 through 20. We're starting here. After Abram returned from defeating Keter Lomer and the kings allied with him. Now remember, there were five kings, that versus four kings. The four kings won. I don't have to go into all of this in detail, but there was a battle of some kings. And um, then Abram came because those kings that won took Sodom and Lot and everybody with him. So Abraham came to save Lot. So after Abram returned from defeating this king and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. But listen to this, there's sort of an interjection here in verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Isn't that interesting? He was priest of God Most High. Is there any doubt that this is a very special king? And he blessed Abraham, or Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Isn't that interesting that he's also speaking on behalf of God Most High? Sounds a lot like Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And then he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And in verse 20, And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Isn't this also interesting? He also blesses God. 
This really does sound like Jesus Christ. You see, put all of these things together. Then, right on the heels of that, it says, Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now, there are two major concepts presented here. The law, because we're talking about this tithe or a tenth. There's a concept. It's not a law yet, but it is the concept that brings law to mind. And we, this is what we're going to be dwelling on today. But there's the, So there's the concept of this thing called the law and the use of bread and wine. Very important aspects for us to understand. So first let's understand that Melchizedek, king of Salem, is presented at just the time when one set of kings has battled another set of kings, and that was in Genesis 14, just before this. And I'm not going to go through all of that. Just before the king of Sodom comes to meet Abraham, or just at that time, and just after the five kings battled these four kings, which I just mentioned, Melchizedek comes. So he brings out bread and wine, he blesses Abram, he blesses the God Most High, and then Abram ties to Melchizedek. Let's look at the symbolism of the bread and wine. Let's parse these details because we need to understand them. Bread and wine is used throughout Scripture. You've probably seen it. If you've read Scripture, you've seen either bread by itself or wine as itself used um, either metaphorically or in, actually, in actuality what they were, depending on what you were reading in the Bible. Bread and wine together is typically symbolize the provision of the requirements to achieve or maintain physical life. You've heard of, you know, thou shalt not live by bread alone. That doesn't mean you don't need bread. It doesn't mean that all you eat is bread. You need meat and other things, but you get the idea. But also, the symbols of bread and wine are chosen by Jesus Christ to commemorate his sacrifice until he comes again. Very important features. Melchizedek is, quote-unquote, authorized to offer these to Abram. And it's very important to take note of, especially in the light of the fact that Abram was a wealthy man, that he did not need physical provision. Remember, I told you that Abram is wealthy. So does he need someone to give him provision? No. So when Melchizedek offers him bread and wine, it is for some other reason. And I know you're already guessing that reason. The king of peace is quite different than other kings. Now, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who blesses the most high God and submits to every word from his mouth? Jesus Christ. Please turn to, turn to Psalm 110, verses 1 through 5. I read this last week, but I want to make sure we, we move into this. By the way, keep your Bibles ready. Keep your fingers moistened or whatever you do to turn those pages because this is going to turn out to be a real scripture burner today. Of course, if you're like Travis, you have an electronic version. All you got to do is just touch the stupid thing. <laughs> Psalm 110, verses 1 through 5. Very telling here. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, God the Father, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, we talked about this last week. Who are the two lords that are spoken of here? Think of the context. Yahweh and the Lord with the capital L and the rest of the letters that are small, who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. But just remember when this was written, many, many years before Jesus Christ came. In Revelation, doesn't it say enemies at the footstool? Yeah, yeah. It says it in a couple of different places yeah. throughout Scripture. Absolutely. So you, that's right. So it's very good. So you see the symbolism here. The Scripture not only interprets itself, but it uses symbolism over and over again. So as you study more deeply, you'll find that it's very quick to understand what God's talking about if you understand 
the symbolism as you go. It's very interesting mm -hmm. how that works. The context is being set here in Psalm 110. Who's he speaking about? Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. We talked about the scepter of rulership. We talked about, we haven't gotten there yet, but when Jacob is blessing the 12 tribes of Israel when he's about to die, and he gives each specific tribe their own blessing, the one thing he says about the tribe of Judah, which is the line through which the kings come, King David and of course Jesus Christ, he says, and the scepter of rulership, oops, I'm stripped of the microphone here, and the scepter of rulership shall not depart from between the paws of the lion of Judah. And we talked all about astronomy, we talked about all of, all of the gospel written in the stars a long time ago. So you see how this all ties together. Verse 3, your troops will be willing, will be willing on your day of battle, your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. Who are his troops? Us. And arrayed in holy majesty, we're going to wear white robes. We talked about this, the same kind of covering, it really seems very strongly that Adam and Eve had that they lost when they knew that they were naked. There is some covering that they had that they lost after they sinned. It's the object to give that covering back to God's people, and we will have that covering. It's this Shekinah glory kind of thing that is undefinable. We know that it is the holiness of God somehow manifest as a holy covering. So there was something different about Adam and Eve's physiology, even though they were fully human and that's all they were, but there was something because of their close connection with God, they had an additional attribute that they lost when sin separated them at least one degree from God. So we're saying that we're going to be arrayed in that when we come back with Him. So arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, and here's the key, you are a priest forever in the order of whom? Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. Now Melchizedek comes just as some kings are crushed, aren't they? And he talks to Abram, which is the son of promise. You see how all this is tied together? Melchizedek also, if you'll notice, when we, from we, we read introducing Melchizedek back in Genesis, he's not just a king. What else is he? A priest. When Israel was born, when the nation was born, they had how many tribes? There were 12 tribes. But there were two really, I would say two of the major tribes were Judah and the Levites. The Levites were, were all the lines of the priests. Uh, by the way, today, as, the, as Israel is getting ready to rebuild that third temple, did you know, and I think some of you know this, that they right now have all of the garments, all of the implements for the temple ready, including the priests, the, the garb for the high priest with the breastplate, with the 12 stones, everything. They found how to make the special blue dye that scripture says it's supposed to be made out of. They have it ready. They're fitting these people. But my point here is that they are in the process right now. This is not future. This is right now. They are training up to 50,000 Kohenim. If you've ever known a Jewish person named Kohen or Levit, that last name says that they're from the line of Levi, from the Levitical priesthood. Now, not all of them are, but they are mapping them and they are getting ready to have these priests. They're going to reestablish the Levitical priesthood when that temple is built, which is coming soon. But that's how important the line of the priest is. And in this king are both lines.
By the way, who is Jesus Christ to us? Is he our king? King of kings, Lord of lords? Is he also our high priest? Would you say that Melchizedek is both king and priest? And it ends up that Jesus Christ is both king and priest. By the way, we're just told in and of the order of Melchizedek. I want you to tie these together. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. The priests had certain duties. Matter of fact, as I mentioned last week, the priests did not share in the land grants when the, when the children of Israel entered the land of Canaan. Because their job was to live and die, if you will, by that temple. And they serviced that temple continually. They, serviced, they did the services for the sacrifices. They sacrificed not only for themselves, but for the people. By the way, what was the one sacrifice that was once and for all? Jesus Christ. How many times have we said the name Jesus Christ so far? We're only in the Old Testament. Like I said, and I'll keep saying it again, the better you understand Genesis, the less problem you will have with the rest of Scripture. It just becomes what? Detail. That's all it is. That's why we're dwelling so long on Genesis. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, an excellent, excellent definition of the priestly duties. But I want you to understand, in Hebrews, we also have what's called the faith chapters. We're not going all through that yet, but I just want you to understand the context. They've got to set context here. This is showing who Jesus Christ is and what his faith is. This is exemplifying that. An excellent definition of the priestly duties in verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Sounds like a good definition of the priestly duties, doesn't it? Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. Remember, they had a sacrifice for the people and for themselves as well. I also told you that the high priest, when he went in to, to, to deal into the, go into the Holy of Holies, that once a year, which was the Day of Atonement, it was said that they tied a rope to the ankle and they also had bells around him. Why'd they do that? Because if the bells stopped, they would pull him out. Uh, verse 3, this is why he, the high priest, or the priest, rather, has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. In verse 4, no one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, as you know, was, was the beginning of the priesthood. Verse 5, so Christ also did not take it upon himself, or did not take upon himself the glory of becoming high priest, but God said to him, now I want you to get this. Remember it says also Jesus Christ did not grasp, right? Did not grasp for this priesthood because it says no one takes this honor upon himself. Jesus Christ was man as well as God, but because he was manifest as man and he was a Jew, he was in the line of Judah, so he was part of the kings, but he was not necessarily or intrinsically rather a part of the line of the Levitical priesthood. This is the history I want you to understand. We're going to go along here because the more you understand history and scripture from the Hebraic, from the, the Israeli or the Israelite point of view, the better you will understand Jesus Christ. And, the less, and, and, and you will also understand if you've been brought up to the point where you think that the church replaced Israel. Or if you think that the church is something special more than Israel. Or if you think, God forbid, that Israel is done away with, these things will help turn your mind around. I'm not saying anybody here has these, these thoughts, but I want you to know that there are people here from different backgrounds. And that's what we're here to do, is to learn the truth and, and parse it and integrate it at the same time so that you know who you are 
and who we are in Jesus Christ, but in the larger context of God's plan. Has God forsaken Israel? God forbid. Paul says that in Romans. In verse 5, uh, he says, But God said to him, Jesus Christ, You are my son. You are my son, capital S. Today, I have become your father. And he says in another place, which by the way is in Psalms, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Is this shaping up for you here? You getting all of this? In Hebrews 5 and verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He was emotionally involved in what he was asking God for. And in, 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 in cries and tears to, one, to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. For all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I want you to understand because we're still, we haven't even gotten to the law yet. We haven't gotten to the meat of what I'm going to talk about. But I want you to understand who this Melchizedek is and why it's so important we know. And why it's so important we understand that this, this is telling about who Jesus Christ is and, and, and this law of tithe, which is exemplary of the laws of Israel. By the way. When we get to the Leviticus in that area of the Bible, we're going to talk about these laws. Do you have any laws God gave Israel? I'm not even talking about the laws they made for themselves. 613. You ever see a Jew with, with the prayer shawl? They have all these knots around it. You know, what, you know how many knots are on that? 613. That's how bound to the physical law they are. That's a shame. We're going to go into that because we have some time left, so stay tuned. Now, uh, so we see where we are. Okay, so verse 10. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hence, I'm going to be some my words now. Hence the bread and the wine offered by Melchizedek, the king of peace. See how there's this reciprocal thing? Jesus Christ is given to us in the order of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek was the first to give the symbolism of bread and wine way before anybody even knew about it. These are the things that you pass right over in Scripture when you're just reading cursory. That's why you cannot read Scripture as a novel. It is not a novel. And it's great to you know, get these devotions where you can read Scripture, every Scripture, every little bit day by day. That's perfect. It's wonderful. But don't expect to get this level of understanding unless you study it. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about this right now. Hebrews verse 5 and verse 11. We have much to say about this, but... Now listen to this, and I want, I want you to think, because I've thought this in the past, and I still think of it now, so I want you to think of this as if he were talking to you. But it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. Oop, that hurt. In fact, though, by this time, like, how long have you been a Christian? How long have I been a Christian? How long has he been talking to these people? You ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquired with the teaching about righteousness. Isn't that interesting? But solid food is for the mature, who by occasional reading the Bible, occasional daily devotionals about looking at Scripture, maybe some prayer here and there. No, no, no. Who by what? 
constant use, have what? Trained themselves. We are part and parcel of our own blessing of God's word. Make no mistake about it. Why can I be so adamant about it? Because guess who found out the hard way? I thought I knew a lot of things. I was in a, in, a, in a church that was very legalistic. I would have lived and died by the law. That's why I want to teach you all about it here. Because without understanding it, you're going to be on one side of the law or the other. But you won't be under grace as much as you, as you know you should be. And this is what this is all about. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to what? Distinguish good from evil. Now, if you're thinking that, well, this is something different, like good and evil, you know, uh, you know good versus bad in, in, in the world. No, no, no. Good and evil. Good and evil. You can only understand good and evil if you understand the aspects of the law versus grace. The law, when you don't understand it, you can wind up, as Israel does, being very works-oriented, even as Christians, which is horrible, horrible, because I was like that. You will also refuse to believe the truth if it doesn't map into what you already think. That's why, I remember when I started this class back, oh, in October, what did I say was one of the first things you'll have to start looking at changing? Worldview. And then we said the second thing was everything has to be studied and looked at in context. Therefore, let us have the elementary, let us leave. Oh, sorry to have, have leave. Therefore, Hebrews 6 and verse 1. Let us leave the elementary truths, uh, the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. Wait a minute. Isn't it all about Christ and Him crucified? That is the point. But I have said before, and now I hope you see, it is not just about Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified is considered an elementary teaching. If you and I as Christians, really all we dwell is on that, that's okay. You know what? You have salvation. But what do you think you're storing up in heaven if all you can talk about is Christ and Him crucified? Please understand what I'm saying. You are here and this is good because you want to understand the meat of Scripture. This is great. And as you go, as you go, when you're talking to other Christians and when you're talking to people who you are helping to see the truth, isn't it going to be a lot better when you leave this classroom and you understand so much more that you can offer to people, especially Christians who don't know these things, but you do. So you're here and, you're, and this is good. But I'm just showing you how important it is that even Scripture in the New Testament, we're not even talking about the Old Testament now, says the same things. Hebrews chapter 7. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. By the way, did I tell you it's torturous listening to my own voice? I don't know how you stand it every week. Because i got to listen to this when I edit all the clicks and the pops and the yes and the so's and all that stuff. It's like, oh, no, i got to listen to myself. And it takes about two hours to edit the audio. So I don't have to listen to myself. I'm going to have my wife do it, but she won't. No, she probably would if I asked her, but she listens to me enough. She doesn't need to hear me anymore. Okay, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. By the way, who also is king of righteousness? Say his name again. Hallelujah. Then also, king of Salem, which means king of peace. I don't have to ask you to say his name again, do I? Without father or mother... Without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
So that's another attribute which why people think that Melchizedek could have been the pre-incarnate were Jesus Christ before he became Jesus Christ. He may have been Melchizedek. We know that Jesus Christ has appeared to men in Scripture before he became Jesus Christ. So this probably is one of those. Can't say we know for sure, but it doesn't matter because we know for sure what exactly Melchizedek means. But it's interesting to say that it's an extension here. That's something that Scripture doesn't necessarily make clear in Genesis 14, but he knows that uh, there is no genealogy. There's no background to this. this Melchizedek just appears on the scene. Isn't that interesting? Verse 4 in chapter 7. Just think how great he was. Just think how great he was. Melchizedek. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires... Now we're getting to the law here. So listen closely. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. By the way, did Jesus Christ come from the descent directly of Levi? No. Just a little nuance, a little meat for you. Verse 7, And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. Isn't that interesting? One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham. Because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Remember the promise that God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and the company of nations, but the great nation of others is Israel. So you see the genetics play a very important part here. And the law of the tithe was given to Abraham even though it wasn't a law yet, just like I said. So this really hopefully makes it clear what that says. Verse 11, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Very interesting question. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there must also be a change of the law. For he, let's see, uh, he who, who of these things, who, who said of these things are said to belong to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served the altar. Right, because Levites were the only ones to serve the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. Didn't we just say that's right, that he did not descend from the Levitical priesthood? And in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Very clear. And what he has said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. Hmm. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation, a regulation, a law, as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, oh, what do we read again here? You are a priest forever in the order of whom? Did I give you enough proof from Scripture exactly what he's trying to tell you here about who Melchizedek is and why he's so important? Any doubt about the relationship of Melchizedek and his attributes and Jesus Christ and his attributes? The, the law is introduced at this juncture in the book of Genesis, but it isn't a law yet. But you can see how much is documented about the precursor of the tithe being the basis for all law, being the basis of the, of the application of the Levitical priesthood, in this documentation of the first application of the concept of tithing, it is not mentioned where Abram learned this concept. Isn't that interesting? It just says that he tithed to Melchizedek. 
But I'm thinking, my guess is that Melchizedek said, I am so-and-so, and here's what you need to do. And Abram did not argue with him. That's what I think, but I don't know for sure. Listen to this. Kings of the earth demand taxes to fund their governments, but Melchizedek demanded 10% and only that 10%. Very precise. Eventually, Israel was given, like I said, 613 laws to follow. Among them was the law of paying the tithe, and that, when you pay the tithe, it was from your very best. Remember hearing that about offering blemished sacrifices to God? He says the same thing about tithing. Turn to Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. So they were eventually given 613 laws, and we're not going to study Leviticus right now, obviously, but we are going to get there, preparing you for as we move forward here. The law is given to Israel in the book of Leviticus. Here's an excerpt, which we're going to go through right now. Leviticus chapter 27. Hint, it's in the Old Testament, like toward the beginning. <laughs> Guess who? Listen, we're going to stay in the beginning for a while here, I think, but... I will tell you, we will speed up after we get out of Genesis, but you see how important it is to map everything out of Genesis. We have to parse Genesis to understand the rest of Scripture. We have about five minutes left or so. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. This is a command now. This is the beginning. This is the giving of the law. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, what? Belongs to the Lord. And the capital L-O-R-D, so make no mistake, this is God's stuff. It is holy, meaning consecrated or set apart to the Lord and for his use. If a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it. It's sort of like your 401k. If you start pulling out of it before you're, before you're due, <laughs> you're going to pay penalties. That's a provision there. He's just making sure that all the bases are covered, because you know what? When you have a law, you have to have all the bases covered so that there are no loopholes. You see how crazy the law can get? Look at our tax laws. Look at other laws that we, everything has to be added and thou, you will do this and this and this and the parties will be that and that and that. Verse um, 32. The entire tithe, entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. He must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. So you see what's going to happen here? You're going to wind up giving like 20% if you don't do it right. Leviticus 27 verse 34. These are the commands the Lord gave Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. Are there any doubt about who these are for? Israel is, to make no mistake, tithing is a law and breaking it has severe consequences. Turn to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Just before Matthew. If you know Matthew, where Matthew is, go one book back. Book of Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 6. Book of Malachi, chapter 3, and verse 6. I still hear pages flipping. Everybody pretty much there? All right. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's a good thing he doesn't change, because his love is love, his covenant is covenant, and we can't break that covenant. We're going to talk about how that, how that works, because God describes how he can make a covenant with someone, and, and it's not up to them to break it, it's only up to him to break it, and he won't break it. It's a good thing he's like that, that's part of God's character. We're going to talk about that a little later on, but not today. Um, so, but anyway, they're not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. 
return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, hmm, how are we to return? And then he says in verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. You see? So he's saying, the point is you're robbing God. If you're not keeping his laws, Israel, not us, Israel, we're going to talk about us in a moment, you're robbing God. Well, a man, will a man rob God? Yeah, yet you rob me. But you ask, oh, God, how are we robbing you? Don't we keep the laws, God? He says, in tithes and offerings, verse 9, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that it may be food in my house. Test me in this. That's the only place that God says to prove him. Remember, we're not supposed to test God in a lot of things, right? Most things. I guarantee you, if there's anybody in here and you are not at least tithing or you are not giving, trust God. Because as the economy gets worse and if you're saying to yourself, you know what, I don't have enough money, maybe I'll have enough money, I'll give a little offering here, a little, little offering in the plate later, watch yourself. Because you see, it's not a question of tithing for us. It is a question of our love for God and our trust. That's the point I need to make right now because we're running short of time and I may not get there in the last few minutes we have, but I want you to understand. Because I asked the question last week, is tithing the law? And some people, I think, said yes. Some people said no and some weren't sure. I want you to be sure. Tithing, as we just proved right here, is a law for Israel. It is not a binding law for the Christian. However, you like when I get animated? However, come next week if we don't get this finished today, because you will, get, you will see the proof script for this. If you do not offer something substantial from your pocketbook, what are you saying to God? What are you saying to him? I don't trust you. I don't trust you one minute. It's not a fact of robbing from God. It's the fact that you're not trusting him. You see, there's a difference. Israel needed to, to, to obey the law. We need to trust God. So if you are not tithing, you need to start with something small and consistent. And I guarantee you, it says, test me in this, and I have tested him. My family has tested him. My children have tested him. And I guarantee you, you will be blessed. You mark these words right now. That's the only thing I can tell you for sure. One of the few things I can tell you for sure that I know. I mean, there's a lot of things I can tell you for sure. But I can speak on behalf of God. He says, you prove me. I'm telling you on behalf of our God. You do it. And you watch the results. Now, that does not mean that you're going to get a dollar back for, or $2 back for every dollar you give to God. But it will mean that your provision will be met. Your bread and wine will be full for what you need at the time you need it. And you've probably seen a lot, like I have, that God's provision is a just-in-time God. Sometimes he does that just to show you he is in control of everything down to the last penny, down to the last morsel of bread you need. So do it. Do it. He says, so, so the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your field. And, and verse 12, then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord. And it goes further. It says, you have said harsh things uh, to, about me. Uh, you can read that later. I want to just move to, to a part here. Malachi verses, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All of the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And then that day is coming. I will set them on fire, says the Lord. 
Move down to verse 4 in Malachi 4. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb, Mount Horeb, for Israel. We're going to stop there right now. By the way, you see what he's saying? Right, at the, right in the Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, remember those laws, act upon them, do them. But then that's the close of the Old Testament. Did you know that there are 430 some odd years in the 430 year range of God sending no prophet, no scripture, no inspiration, nothing. Until when? Until John the Baptist comes on the scene. And then we start the New Testament. I just want to wrap up with this one thought. I hope you're seeing the thread and we're going to, we're going to talk about the New Covenant next week. By the way, did you know? How many of you, well, I don't want you to raise your hand. Just think about it. If, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask this as a question, and I want you to think about it. How many of you think the new covenant is for the church? You do, don't you? And you're right. But it was not made for the church. It was not made for the church. In the book of Jeremiah, and I will re review it with you next week, it was made for Israel. And the only reason why we have it does anybody know why we have um, we're under the new covenant and not Israel? We're grafted in. But why? Why are we even grafted in? That's right. To make him jealous. So you have nothing if it weren't for Israel. And now it's our turn to give Israel because they have nothing if it's not for Jesus Christ. There to be a blessing to us. God forced that because he grafted us in, as you said but we better be a blessing to Israel. So you leave today understanding that there's a difference between law for them and law for us. You understand that we do not replace Israel. There are promises for Israel that do not relate to us. I'm going to show you about the kingdom. This millennial kingdom is for Israel. It's the fulfillment of the promise of a kingdom for Israel. The book of Matthew is for Israel. It's for the Jews. We're going to talk about these things because these things have to be defined so that you understand where law ends and where grace begins, because law really doesn't end. The understanding of it, the keeping of it, is mutated because of the new covenant, which could only be ratified by Jesus Christ's shed blood. Get it? If you don't tithe, will you not go to heaven? If you murder somebody, will you not go to heaven? Yes or no? It's either yes or no. Your sins have been paid for. It has nothing to do with you now. But in the, under the law, if you did these things, your penalty would be separation from your people. And you could be put to death. You understand? Okay. We're going we're gonna to pick up next week. I just want you to think about that because we're still going to finish these thoughts. Have a wonderful week, everybody. And remember, keep those tithes and letters coming in. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs>